Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. Democracy Now! We need aid, life-saving aid. It's def- desperately needed by civilians wherever they are, irrespective of borders and boundaries. We need it urgently through the fastest, most direct, and most effective routes. They need more of absolutely everything. The death toll in Turkey and Syria's top 17,000 and continues to dramatically rise following two devastating earthquakes. The first UN aid convoy has finally reached northwest Syria three days after the quakes. Many survivors are facing unfathomable conditions without shelter, heat, food, water, or medical care. We'll speak with a Syrian doctor, a longtime Syrian activist. Then we look at Russia's war in Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is inflicting untold suffering on the Ukrainian people with profound global implications. The prospects for peace keep diminishing. The chances of further escalation and bloodshed keep growing. I fear the world is not sleepwalking into a wider war. I fear it's doing so with its eyes wide open. As U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres calls for the war to end, we'll speak to a Russian journalist with the news outlet Medusa, which was recently outlawed by the Russian government in Moscow's latest crackdown on the independent press. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from Monday's devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has topped 17,000 and continues to rise dramatically, as search and rescue crews warn the chance of finding survivors in the rubble's rapidly dwindling. Survivors face unfathomable conditions without shelter, heat, food, water or medical care. The first U.N. aid envoy has finally reached— our convoy has finally reached northwest Syria three days after the quakes. Rescue efforts there have been complicated by damage and displacement from 12 years of war and harsh sanctions. This is Rob Holden, World Health Organization's incident manager for the quakes. We have got a large unfolding, huge-scale disaster unfolding on us with large geographical spread. We've got a lot of people who have survived now out in the open, and in worsening and horrific conditions. We've got major disruption uh, to basic water supplies. We've got major disruption to fuel and electricity supplies, communication supplies, the basics of life. We are in real danger of seeing a secondary disaster, which may 
um, caused harm to more people than the initial disaster if we don't move with the same pace and intensity as we are doing on the search and rescue side. Even before Monday's earthquakes, the U.N. estimated over 14 million people inside Syria needed humanitarian assistance and more than 12 million struggled to find enough food to eat. We'll get the latest on the earthquakes and their devastation after headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Brussels to meet with European leaders as Ukraine pushes its bid for European Union membership and stronger sanctions against Russia. He addressed the EU parliament earlier today. While we are fighting, we are also upgrading our institutions. We are moving closer to the European Union. Ukraine will be a member of the European Union. Victorious Ukraine will be a member of the victorious European Union. Zelensky's remarks in Brussels came during a surprise visit to Europe with stops in the UK and France Wednesday, where President Emmanuel Macron bestowed the prestigious Legion of Honor on the Ukrainian president. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak confirmed heavy tanks are being sent to the battlefield and pledged to train Ukrainian forces on NATO standard jets, indicating the U.K. would likely follow up by providing fighter planes, though they haven't approved them yet. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, Russian forces are continuing their advance on the strategic city of Bakhmut in eastern Donetsk region, and Ukrainian officials say shelling is increasing in parts of the Kharkiv region, which was recaptured by Ukraine in September. In the Netherlands, an international team of investigators at The Hague said Wednesday they've uncovered strong indications that Russian President Vladimir Putin approved the supply of missiles used by pro-Russia separatists to shoot down a Malaysia Airlines flight over Ukraine in 2014. The disaster killed all 298 people on board. The Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Seymour Hersh has accused the United States of sabotaging the Nord Stream pipelines, which were built to carry natural gas from Russia to Europe. The pipelines were severely damaged last September in a series of underwater explosions in the Baltic Sea. In a self-published piece on his new Substack page, Seymour Hersh alleges the sabotage was carried out by the U.S. Navy, which he says planted remotely triggered explosives during NATO exercises last summer with the help of Norway's military and Secret Service. Hersh alleges President Joe Biden authorized the sabotage. Hersh cited a single unnamed source, quote, with direct knowledge of the operational planning, unquote. A White House spokesperson described the report as complete fiction, while the CIA called it completely and utterly false. The Norwegian Foreign Ministry also denied the claims. Seymour Hersh's report comes two weeks after Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland made these remarks during a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on the war in Ukraine. I am... And I think the administration is very gratified to know that Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. In December, the New York Times reported Russia had begun expensive repairs on the pipeline, a move which has raised questions about Western claims that Russia had bombed its own pipeline. The sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines released up to 150,000 tons of methane gas into the atmosphere, making it one of the largest methane leaks ever recorded from a single source. 
In climate news, researchers reported Wednesday the area of the Antarctic Ocean covered by sea ice shrank to its lowest extent on record for January, in the latest sign that global heating is accelerating. The European Union's Copernicus Climate Monitor also reported Arctic sea ice is at its third lowest concentration on record, at least for January. Melting sea ice can help accelerate climate change as dark ocean water absorbs heat while white sea ice reflects up to 90 percent of the sun's energy back into space. Ohio authorities have lifted an evacuation order for residents of East Palestine following Friday's freight train crash and fire and the controlled release of toxic chemicals into the air by authorities Monday. The accident has drawn scrutiny to so-called bomb trains, which transport crude oil and other dangerous chemicals across the United States. Some residents of East Palestine have sued the rail company Norfolk Southern for negligence. New reporting by the reveals that Norfolk Southern helped lobby against federal safety rules for freight trains, including a requirement to update Civil War-era braking systems. Meanwhile, Norfolk Southern paid executives millions of dollars and spent billions on stock buybacks while slashing thousands of jobs. At a Wednesday press conference with Governor Mike DeWine, about the train disaster. A reporter was attacked, handcuffed, and arrested for supposed trespassing. News Nation reporter Evan Lambert, a member of the National Association of Black Journalists, was held for five hours. He spoke about the ordeal after his release. This essentially says that you know, there are still charges uh, pending against me. So, um, you know, considering that, I don't think I'm going to talk too specifically about uh, those moments, um, but uh, what I can say is that you know no one expects, uh, no journalist expects to be arrested when you're doing your job, uh, and I think that's really important that that doesn't happen in our country. Here in New York City, an asylum seeker at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal Migrant Facility attempted suicide Tuesday. The 26-year-old is in stable condition at a local hospital. The city has come under fire after a group of migrants refused to stay at the 1,000-bed facility and endure inhumane conditions, they said, including freezing temperatures. On Friday, Mayor Eric Adams spent the night at the Brooklyn facility. Following the stunt, he defended the site but said the city would make some improvements. Meanwhile, New York City has helped some recently arrived migrants travel to Canada to seek asylum. Mayor Adams defended the decision to buy migrants bus tickets to the U.S.'s northern border months after blasting Texas officials for busing migrants to New York. We are not telling anyone to go to any country or state. People who arrived here and already had other destinations in mind were basically basically compelled to come to New York. And when they're part of our intake process and we speak with people and they say they desire is to go somewhere else. To see our full coverage of the story, go to democracynow.org. In Texas, the white supremacist gunman who killed 23 people at an El Paso Walmart in 2019 pleaded guilty in federal court Thursday to hate crimes and weapons charges. The gunman still faces state murder charges that could bring him the death penalty. The shooting was the deadliest attack on the Latinx community in modern U.S. history. Shortly before the massacre, the shooter published a racist online manifesto echoing President Trump's rhetoric 
rhetoric about an invasion of immigrants crossing the southern border. That language has since been echoed by other Republican leaders, including Texas Governor Greg Abbott. A warning to our listeners and viewers, the following story contains violence and the sounds of lethal gunfire. In Georgia, the Atlanta Police Department has released four body camera videos recorded during the deadly January 18th raid on an encampment of activists opposing Cop City, a proposed $90 million police training complex in the Wilani Forest. 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Paez Teran, who went by the name Tortuguita, was shot dead by police during the raid. A private autopsy commissioned by Tehran's family found they were struck by at least 13 bullets. The videos don't directly show Tehran's death, but the sound of the gunfire is clearly audible in the footage. The Georgia State Patrol says it does not have footage of Tehran's killing because it doesn't issue body cameras to its officers. The Atlanta police footage shows some officers warned about the threat of crossfire and questioned whether the wounded state trooper was shot by another officer. Police have said the injured officer was hit in the stomach by a bullet fired by a 9-millimeter pistol purchased by Tehran. Georgia's Department of Public Safety said it would not release the name of the trooper, quote, because disclosure would compromise security against criminal or terroristic acts due to retaliation, unquote. The video's release comes after a member of a community stakeholder advisory committee for Cop City filed an appeal claiming DeKalb County improperly issued a license for the project. Another committee member, Nicole Murado, resigned in protest of Tehran's killing. Murado said, quote, de-escalation is possible. And a family lost a child because all they wanted to was save a forest. And that doesn't sit well with me, she said. To our coverage, to see our coverage of Cop City and the killing of Tortuguita, go to democracynow.org. And in Philadelphia, teaching and research assistants at Temple University, who've been on strike since January 31st, have been told they'll lose their tuition and health care benefits. The Temple University Graduate Students Association called the strike in an effort to boost pay and conditions for the student workers who earn less than $20,000 a year. The cutoff in health benefits left some students unable to fill prescriptions, while others have had to cancel doctor's appointments. The strikers were given until March 9th to pay the entire balance of their tuition in full, or they'll face a $100 late payment fee with a financial hold placed on their accounts. A lead negotiator for the union called Temple's decision needlessly cruel. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The death toll in Turkey and Syria has topped 17,000. It continues to dramatically rise following Monday's devastating twin earthquakes. Many survivors are facing unfathomable conditions without shelter, heat, food, water or medical care.
The first U.N. aid convoy has finally arrived in northwest Syria three days after the quakes. Rescue efforts in Syria have been complicated by damage and displacement from 12 years of war and harsh sanctions. In Turkey's border province of Hatay, devastated residents say help took too long to arrive as they take stock of the disaster. We went to the city center. The situation is worse than here. It is worse. It is almost like a ghost city. We went back at least 50 years in time. Our lives are ruined. Our children are devastated. Our lives are lost. We lost our children, our parents. At least two to three people died from each home. In Syria, displaced survivors around Aleppo say they face freezing conditions amid shortages of heating oil. Many are too scared to remain indoors for fear of more tremors. To be honest, this is harder than war. At war, a strike and it passes. Here, we don't know when it ends. We are terrified, but it's all in God's hands. The humanitarian crisis facing Syria after over 12 years of war is staggering. Prior to the earthquake, the U.N. estimated over 14 million people inside Syria needed humanitarian assistance and that more than 12 million struggled to find enough food to eat. The U.N. says half a million Syrian children are chronically malnourished. The humanitarian group Physicians for Human Rights has documented over 600 attacks on health facilities. 942 medical professionals in Syria have also been killed since the war began. Earlier this week, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent called on the European Union to lift its sanctions to facilitate humanitarian aid, reaching those who need it in government-controlled areas. U.N. Special Envoy Geir Peterson spoke earlier today in Geneva. We need aid, life-saving aid. It's def- desperately needed by civilians wherever they are, irrespective of borders and boundaries. We need it urgently through the fastest, most direct and most effective routes. They need more of absolutely everything. Emergency response must not be politicized. We must instead focus on what is needed urgently to help men, women and children, those who we can still save, those whose lives are devastated by one of the most catastrophic earthquakes the region has seen about in a century. After 12 years of war and displacements, to be visited by such a tragedy in the middle of winter is indeed enough. We're joined now by Dr. Hossam Al-Nahas. He's a Syrian doctor and Middle East and North Africa researcher at Physicians for Human Rights, former emergency trauma physician in war-torn Aleppo, Syria. He's joining us from Baltimore, Maryland, where he received his master's in public health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, we want to talk both personally and uh, what's happening on the grand scale, uh, Dr. Al-Nahas, and thank you so much for being with us. Your family lives in Turkey. The horror of these numbers that are increasing, of course, by the hour. And we don't know really how many people have died. This is an area of many undocumented refugees, both Syria and Turkey, um, hundreds of thousands of them. Can you tell us the scope of the tragedy as you understand it right now? Thank you very much, Ami, and uh, good morning. Uh, well, let me start by, by saying I, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm not uh, 
bearing the pain of losing a sibling or a parent to this earthquake. But of course, it's it's painful to see the loss of my friends, my my relatives, uh, and all the people of Turkey and uh, and Syria over the, to to this uh, earthquake. Actually, as you, as you said, the the toll of death is still unclear. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people are still under rubbles, uh, struggling for their lives. And with each moment pass, their chance of surviving decrease. Uh, the, the situation in uh, in Syria is even worse, with uh, with lack of response, lack of resources. The country has a, as you mentioned, a has went through a, a 12 years of, uh, of, of war, and now this, this crisis is compounded with a one-in-a-century uh, natural disaster like this uh, earthquake. Dr. Al-Nahas, can you uh, speak about what you understand the constraints are to getting uh, humanitarian aid to areas not held by the government? So uh, when we talk about areas not held by the uh, by the government, we are talking about northwest Syria, which rely mainly on one border crossing that has been constantly uh, uh, blocked, and 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 Russia has tried constantly to, uh, uh, to to block it and close it for humanitarian aid. And all UN aid come through this uh, cross border, which is on Babel Hawa. On the other side of the, the cross border, on the Turkish side, uh, lays Rihanli and, and Antakya, which are two, uh, two of the cities that massively were uh, affected by, by the earthquake. And that's why it's hard to get these humanitarian aids to the, uh, to the region uh, from that border crossing. And can you say what exactly are physicians and uh, people uh, calling for, both in uh, international uh, organizations that are providing assistance, what are they saying needs to be done, uh, both uh, to provide aid uh, in these areas in, in northwest Syria, as well as in areas controlled by the regime? What needs to be done? So uh, if, you, if, if I can start by northwest uh, now the, the, the search and rescue uh, operations are still ongoing. People are still getting out under, from under the, the rubbles uh, of their homes. And there is no uh, heavy equipment to help uh, lift these, these rubbles. So prioritizing, supporting the, 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 the search and rescue efforts is, is, is one of the main uh, uh, calls now. Uh, also, we are to- when we talk about northwest Syria, we are talking about a collapsing health system with lack of resources, lack of human resources, lack of medications that has been already uh, uh, an issue uh, in-, in the region even before the earthquake. Now we are talking about millions who lost their homes, lost their shelters, and now are looking for, for health services. Hospitals from people I talk to and colleagues who are working inside Syria are overwhelmed with, uh, with victims to this uh, earthquake in addition to uh, uh, the people who are still uh, seeking services uh, for their chronic illnesses, women who are seeking services for, to, for, to deliver their babies and seeking services to, to follow up on their pregnancy, it's just a lot of, uh, of, of work on, on healthcare providers with very limited resources. As you mentioned earlier, uh, this first convoy from the, uh, from the UN just arrived three days after, which means that this, the whole region was trying to work and operate on the stock that is there uh, in, in, in the country.
In Aleppo, Syrian survivors of the earthquake were seen helping rescue workers clear the ruins of destroyed and damaged buildings, trying to break through cement to rescue other people. We haven't slept all night. We're really scared. We are in the street. We do not have a place to go. There is either the mosque or the street. Don't you want to go home? We're scared for the children. When we went back home, a new earthquake took place, so we went back to the street. We remembered the days of the war, but this is God's will. Of course, it looks like the numbers are just going to dramatically escalate. About, what, 80 years ago, the earthquake of 1939 killed over 30,000 people. What do you think it's most important, Dr. Al-Nahas, for people to understand right now? I mean, you were a doctor there. Now you're a doctor here in the United States. I, I can say throughout my work inside Syria between 2011 and 2014 as a war doctor, as an emergency physician uh, in, uh, in Aleppo, I've never seen this massive casualty or mass casualty even uh, before. And, and I think it's important for everyone to know that there is a grave need to support humanitarian workers to support healthcare providers to help them uh, get the uh, or provide the services that people are in grave need for we are talking specifically more more specifically about northwest syria we are talking about 4.6 million people living in this uh, area around 3 million of them are idps already have been living in tents already already have been living in in slums and and now they left they they lost all their belonging all their their livelihood means well dr hassan alnahasuan thank you for being with us syrian doctor middle east and north africa researcher at physicians for human rights former emergency trauma physician in war torn aleppo came to baltimore uh, to go to school at johns hopkins this is democracy now when we come back we speak with a longtime syrian activist stay with us She's sitting in a bathroom stall with a marker in her hand, scribbling down the words to a favorite song by her favorite band. She hopes someone will read them and maybe they'll understand how it feels to care so much it hurts. So hard you shake To love so intensely that it scares you To build so much that something breaks She knows that she's not the only one Sometimes it sure feels that way In a little college town in Ohio So there's a song that she sings every day I want something And I'm not sure exactly what it is But I think that we could build it 
Evan Greer's I Want Something, a favorite song of independent journalist and activist Jen Angel, we're thinking of today and rooting for today, who's hospitalized in California after being critically injured in a robbery in Oakland. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. As the death toll tops 17,000 in Turkey and Syria from Monday's twin earthquakes, we continue to look at the situation in Syria after almost 12 years of devastating war. We go now to Berlin, Germany, where we're joined by Yasin Ahaj Saleh. He's a Syrian writer dissident, former political prisoner, author of the book The Impossible Revolution, Making Sense of the Syrian Tragedy. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Yassine. If you can talk about this absolute catastrophe um, in both Syria and in Turkey um, that is packed full of hundreds of thousands of refugees, millions of people affected. We don't finally know the death toll at all. What you feel it's most important for under people to understand that have gone through a political earthquake, if you will, particularly in Syria with all of these years of war. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, um, as you said, it is 12 uh, years of struggle in Syria. It, it didn't start as a war. Actually, it was peaceful, uh, uprising, then armed and peaceful. Then it became chaotic situation with many uh, regional and international powers intervening in the country. And, but it was dealt usually like um, a natural catastrophe. I mean, um, with without accountability, without holding um, the big criminals uh, um, responsible for what uh, they uh, have done. So now when, when a, a real natural catastrophe has come, uh, the, the uh, destroyed infrastructure and the threshold of international response, uh, response to uh, um, to the catastrophe is uh, so high to the degree that, as you've, uh, your report uh, mentioned, uh, three days after the earthquake, some uh, UN uh, aid uh, is finally coming to the country, and it is not clear that it is related to the search and rescue uh, um, uh, activities, which is the most vital now. Uh, with every hour, uh, things will become uh, will become worse. So, uh, I mean, this is, um, um, it, uh, you cannot uh, isolate this from politics for long years. Syria was not um, dealt with as um, in a responsible way, uh, in a way that defend the victims, and now it is still going the same way. Uh, um, the uh, international activities are um, uh, oriented towards mostly towards Turkey, and the uh, the area hit in Syria, which is northwestern, is hardly uh, receiving any help. 
Yasin, could you speak about what some of the difficulties are in providing this aid? I mean, effectively, at this point, Syria has been uh, partitioned with all uh, the different uh, countries that have uh, participated, that have intervened and that have occupied Syria in these last 12 years. If you could just explain uh, uh, what has happened in Syria uh, in these last uh, years. So it was a great moment of courage and of it, it was a revolution. It was an uprising for freedom and for democracy and for justice. Uh, these 12 years are uh, a time of extremes, actually. Um, extreme courage, extreme, uh, extreme solidarity, extreme cooperation, extreme sacrifice, uh, but also extreme um, um, c- crimes, uh, torture, rape, uh, destruction, uh, genocide in a way, with at least 400,000, I guess it is even more, uh, the casualties, which is close to 2% of the population. Uh, you know that 7 millions are displaced externally, which is close to 3 uh, to 30% of the population. Um, so, um, if we compare this to the U.S., I guess it is like uh, displacing 100 millions of the Americans and killing some five or six millions. So, it, 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 is, it is huge, unprecedented, and in a small country. Syria is not that big uh, country. But you see that it is, uh, we have, during these years, we have, uh, uh, the U.S., we have Russia, we have Iran, we have Turkey, and we have Israel before all and uh, all the time. At the same time, Syrians are scattered in 126 countries, according to the uh, uh, a recent, rather recent report by the Human Rights Watch. So, in a way, you can say that the world is in Syria during these 12 years, and Syria is in the world, and and that's why I always say that Syria is a microcosm. Syria is something that tells the world very important things about its structure and and about its future. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, Why do you think Syria is a microcosm of the world? And also uh, the fact that Syria continues to be, the war in Syria continues to be referred to as a civil war, despite the fact, as you've said, that these uh, minimally five countries have been uh, very actively involved in the war for many years. yeah, this is not to mention many sub-state actors like Hezbollah, like many uh, militias from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, with the sponsorship of uh, the uh, government of uh, Tehran. And also not to mention many uh, Sunni jihadi organizations hailing from dozens of countries in their heyday. Now um, they are on decline, uh, fortunately. So it is. It is. It is. It is microcosm because it, uh, Syria is a uh, microcosm because what has been happening in the country uh, is related to uh, international global structures. I mean uh, issues of Islamophobia, issues of terror, uh, terrorism, and the war on uh, terror, issues of. You know that the Middle East is the most internationalized region in the world. 
I think so. So um, we have all these um, uh, parties with high stakes in the country. At the same time, when, when you see that almost three, uh, 30% of the population are uh, uh, pushed uh, to uh, neighboring and to faraway countries, so, so it is globalized. Uh, so in a way, we can say that the world is a macro, a macro Syria. And I believe that the uh, Russian invasion to Ukraine uh, wouldn't have been possible without this, without actually uh, um, accepting and tolerating the intervention in Syria. Syria is not a neighboring country. Historically, Russia intervened in neighboring areas close to, uh, to Russia proper. Uh, but in Syria, Putin thought that, um, well, if he can have an outpost overseas in Syria, which is not a neighboring country to, uh, to Russia, so uh, it is okay. No one uh, condemned it, not the U.S., not the European Union, not the U.N., condemned the Russian uh, intervention in Syria. Uh, and so I think this was a very uh, dangerous message to the uh, Russian regime that it is okay for them to uh, do whatever they want in their neighboring, in their, in their back garden, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> if you could, Yassine, talk about how uh, the war on terror has impacted the way the war has unfolded and Talk about your own personal story, which we've had you on before talking about, about your wife, Samira, and what happened. I think this all is a part of one uh, narrative. Well, what link uh, these, uh, the painful thing, the personal, extremely painful thing, and uh, uh, the global situation is the priorities of the most powerful. You know that in the past, up to maybe 1990s, there were different diagnoses of uh, uh, political evil. So um, maybe political evil was colonialism, uh, maybe uh, uh, genocides, uh, uh, wars of aggression, uh, state tyranny, and uh, torture states like uh, the one we have in Syria for 60 years. By the way, in, in, in March, it will be the 12th anniversary of the Syria uprising and the 60, uh, the 60th anniversary of the Ba'ath uh, uh, party rule in the country. I mean, we've been for 60 years without any political life. So um, now uh, the, um, the diagnosis of, of uh, political evil shifted to terror since uh, September 2001 in the U.S. Even before, in my opinion, a decade before, the, the political evil is terror. No, no longer aggression, no, no longer war, no longer uh, colonialism, no longer settler colonialism, no longer genocides. So the priority of the powerful is the most powerful priority now, and uh, it is imposed on the whole world, actually. The worst about it is that it leads to securitization of politics and to um, to more 
influence of those who are uh, involved in security, which is in, uh, in, in my country and in the world, those who are been busying themselves in killing people and torturing them and, and raping them and making uh, uh, their life hell. So this priority uh, uh, built sort of a common ground between the U.S. Uh, uh, administrations and the regime, the Syrian regime. And actually, actually it, it, it has um, empowered all those who were already powerful and weaken those uh, popular movements and uh, individuals and activists and uh, uh, those who struggle for human rights and for democracy, weakened, and they were already weak, especially in countries uh, uh, like Syria. So, uh, I mean, this prioritizing has sacrificed Syria and make the country in this unspeakable uh, condition. My uh, wife and my friends and my brother, actually, and so many uh, of my acquaintances and friends uh, uh, were among the ones who um, who were lost in a, an extremely insane situation. And uh, toleration of the uh, international community to this uh, uh, insane situation for... Thousands of days. It is. Uh, it is now almost five thousand days uh, of this continuous uh, insanity. I wanted to ask what you think, Yassine, about the Biden administration so far refusing calls to lift sanctions on Syria. The State Department says it's partnering with NGOs in Syria, but Secretary of State Antony Blinken has confirmed there's been no diplomatic contact between the two countries since the earthquakes. This is what he said. With regard to Syria, I'm not aware of any contacts between the uh, United States government and the Syrian government in, uh, in recent days um, since the, the earthquake. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you yourself have been imprisoned under um, Bashar al-Assad's father. Um, you were arrested for being communist in Syria, held for 16 years a prisoner. Uh, now his son rules. Um, your thoughts about what should happen right now? Look, when I was in jail in 19... Uh all 1980s, uh, more than half of 1990s, uh, there was sanctions against the Assad regime, the pair at the time, the Hafez, uh, after um, an assault or a bomb, I guess it was put in um, an Israeli plane in 1986 or 1987. And we were in jail at the time, and we were impacted by it, actually. I mean, even our our families were impacted, and we were uh, impacted. I was a smoker at that time, just to give one example, and we didn't have uh, cigarettes, we didn't have uh, even tissues, you know, uh, you, uh, 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 um, sanity, uh, or, um, sorry, the, 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 I, don't, uh, I don't remember the word in English. So we lacked so many things in jail. Now my... Uh, position above sanctions is the same. I want my people to live in a better condition. I am I am I don't approve of the sanctions. I know that the Assad regime will benefit very much 
by uh, lifting the sanctions. And uh, I'm, of course, I am ambivalent about this. I don't want they they are extremely corrupt and they will steal most of the aid. The, there are already reports by uh, about this, by the way. Um, so, but at the same time, I, w- I don't want my people to uh, starve and to be humiliated by hunger and by dire needs, as it has been happening uh, uh, all the time. So I find myself in uh, not very um, good position, actually. Uh, as I've just said, I am ambivalent. Uh, I don't, I, I want the country, the people of the country to um, to not to suffer from oppression and from starvation. Um, but I'm afraid this will um, this will um, be great for the regime, which is, however, I, I mean, if the regime is still there, because uh, there are powerful supporters of the uh, of it, and there were uh, weak, very weak challengers. It, it is us, and for genocide, the regime, we don't have one example of a genocide regime that was toppled by its people. One, it's okay to gas your people with sarin and with uh, chlorine and and barrel bombs and industrial torture. Um, well, it is not um, up to the people to change their uh, their uh, conditions, and we don't hope uh, any help. It is too late, and I don't expect any help. So, well, I'm. Um, I'm for lifting the sanction. I don't know if there's a very smart way to do it without benefiting uh, the regime. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I cannot say a clear-cut answer to this because, mm, I mean, our enemy, which is ruling the country, will benefit from it, but I hope the, um, the people will benefit from it a bit. Well, Yassine, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Yassine al-Hajj Salah is a Syrian writer, dissident, and former political prisoner, was jailed in Syria from 1980 to 1996. Um, his wife uh, was uh, kidnapped, uh, Samira, along with three others in 2013, has never been uh, seen again. Um, uh, Yassine's book— includes The Impossible Revolution, Making Sense of the Syrian Tragedy. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, as the U.N. Secretary General calls for the war in Ukraine to end, we'll speak with a Russian journalist whose news outlet, Medusa, was recently outlawed by the Russian government. Stay with us. Don't you work yourself, yourself to death, take a break. From the man made to catch your breath today. Be the last you know. Happy's how you want to go. No pain could ever buy your soul, ever make you whole. Don't you fake no smile if it ain't true.
sunny war. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. The Ukrainian president, President Volodymyr Zelensky, is in Brussels today, where he addressed the European Union Parliament. The visit comes after he made surprise trips to Paris and London, where he urged European nations to begin providing Ukraine with fighter jets. The British prime minister, Rishi Sunak, confirmed heavy tanks are being sent to the battlefield and pledged to train Ukrainian forces on NATO standard jets, indicating the UK would likely follow up or providing fighter planes, though they haven't agreed to this yet. Moscow's warned such a move would only prolong the war. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said today, the line between indirect and direct involvement is gradually disappearing, unquote. This all comes as Ukraine prepares for what's expected to be a major new Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine. Earlier this week, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres repeated his call for an end to the war. I want to convey my deep sadness about the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. I extend my condolences to the families of the victims. The United Nations is mobilizing to support the emergency response, and so let's work together in solidarity to assist all those hit by this disaster, many of whom were already in dire need of humanitarian aid. During my tenure as High Commissioner for Refugees, I went several times. We're joined right now by Alexei Kovalov, investigative editor of Medusa, an independent Russian news outlet. We were scheduled to interview Alexei in January, but just before we went to air, the Russian government banned Medusa and designated it an undesirable organization, forcing him to postpone the interview. Last March, Alexei Kovalov wrote a piece for The Washington Post headlined, I'm a Russian journalist. I had to flee my country. Putin's latest crackdown has destroyed the independent media. And now we see this latest attack on Medusa. Alexei, welcome to Democracy Now!, speaking to us from Berlin, Germany. Can you start off by saying, what does this designation mean? How does this affect all of your work? Um, hello, and thank you for having me. Um, so uh, this effectively means that uh, uh, both producing and distributing our content is, um, is, an, is illegal in Russia. It's a criminal offense. Uh, so um, anyone who's involved in, uh, in our work as a freelancer or a staff member uh, is liable, but also anyone who uh, shares a link to one of our stories on the social media, uh, that is also under the uh, undesirable organization law in Russia is also a criminal offense, uh, which, uh, can, which is punishable by uh, up, uh, prison up to four or five years. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty drastic. It could be worse, uh, for example, in neighboring Belarus. Uh, it, it, not just the produ uh, production and distribution of content is criminalized, but also the consumption. For example, you go outside and the police stop you in the streets and um, um, see that you subscribe to a certain Telegram channel, for example, and that's also a criminal liability. So, yeah, it could be worse for us, but here we are now. Alexei, so explain what the fallout of this has been already. Uh, do you still have uh, people working with you uh, from Russia, and has there been any impact on them? Um, 
I cannot for their safety uh, go into specifics, uh, but we, for example, we had to remove uh, most of the bylines on our free, uh, of our freelance contributors uh, to protect them from uh, criminal liability. We still have sources and we still have contributors, but uh, they have to uh, work on deep background uh, uh, because they cannot be publicly associated with Medusa now. Because this is very serious. I mean, uh, even for uh, for people um, who left the country, uh, they are not st still not safe because uh, unless uh, they've evacuated their entire extended families and friends from Russia, they are still in danger because the Russian security services uh, can and will and have in the past uh, gone after relatives of people who left Russia. So this is also something that we have to keep in mind. And explain, Alexei, how, you know, the impact of this on the Russian public, how are people learning? Uh, I mean, at the end of this month, it'll be one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How are people in Russia uh, learning of what's actually going on? I mean, talk about the kind of reporting that Medusa and uh, the few other independent news outlets that remain, the critical reporting uh, that you were doing, issues that you were covering that, that uh, simply aren't being covered now. Yeah, okay, look, so on uh, February 24 last year, uh, Medusa and, and uh, all other independent media in Russia, in, by independent I mean uh, outlets that are not directly owned uh, or, or indirectly controlled by the Kremlin, and that is uh, most of the uh, uh, media consumption in Russia, uh, most of the media co consumed by, uh, by Russians are either directly or indirectly controlled or owned by the Kremlin. So um, uh, all of the others on, uh, uh, on the day of the, of the invasion received a memo from the censorship ministry. It has a different name, but uh, the, uh, it's in essence the censorship ministry. So we all received a memo where uh, they uh, demanded that we only use information in our coverage uh, provided to us by uh, government officials. Everything else will be considered fake news. And a few days later, uh, the uh, Russian parliament... Uh, adopted a set, uh, a set of laws that effectively criminalized any, any, um, uh, any independent uh, journalism. Uh, so we were facing a choice whether to um, self-censor. Uh, uh, even the war, if, in this memo, even the, war, uh, the word war itself was uh, uh, off bounds. So you could only refer to the invasion as a special military operation, not war. And have, people have already been per persecuted for calling this a war. Uh, but we made a choice on that day. Uh, we made a choice that uh, we will not. We will not. Uh, uh, we will not be submitting to these demands, and we will be covering this for what it is—a criminal invasion. Uh, and uh, we had to. Um, well, we had to face the consequences. We had to. I was leaving until uh, until March last year. I would live in my home in Moscow. I had to leave it all behind all my life. Uh, but I don't regret it. I mean. Uh, this is what this is what uh, we were uh, we have been preparing to do all of our all of our lives. This is probably the most important missions to record the crimes committed by our country in our name, no no matter the cost. And uh, this is what we've been doing uh, for day in day out, uh, most of the time without weekends for twenty for twelve fourteen hours a day. We have uh, uh, sources in uh, in Russia and in Russia and Ukraine. We're covering the war, both the domestic consequences of this war uh, for Russians and for Ukraine, 
Uh, we are investigating war crimes committed by the Russian military in, in Ukraine. So doing basically our job as, as, journalists, as any you, journalists would do. I wanted to ask you, Alexei, um, uh, about um, you have Zelensky going from, you know, from Britain to Paris to Belgium, appealing for more weapons. And you have the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, speaking about the call to end the war. Uh, earlier, we played the wrong clip about him on the earthquake. Let's go to the correct clip. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is inflicting untold suffering on the Ukrainian people with profound global implications. The prospects for peace keep diminishing. The chances of further escalation and bloodshed keep growing. I fear the world is not sleepwalking into a wider war. I fear it's doing so with its eyes wide open. If you could respond to this, I also want to ask you about this latest news, the former far-right Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett saying he actually brokered a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine early last year, but Western leaders blocked it. He made the claim in an interview with Israel's Channel 12. I'll say this in a broad sense. I think there was a legitimate decision by the West to keep striking Putin and not striking Putin? Putin was striking Ukraine. Hold on, yes. But given, I mean, the more aggressive approach, I'll tell you something. I can't say if they were wrong. Maybe other thugs in the world would see it. My position at the time in this regard, it's not an Israeli interest. Unlike the consulate of Iran, when I'm concerned about Israel, I stand firm, yes. Here, I don't have to say that I'm just the mediator. But I turn to America in this regard. I don't do as I please. Anything I did was coordinated down to the last detail with the U.S., Germany, and France. So they basically blocked it? Basically, yes. They blocked it, and I thought they were wrong. That's the former Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett. Alexei, your response to both him and uh, Guterres' call for an end to this war? Um, okay, there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, actually perfectly clear when the war uh, will end. Uh, this is when uh, Russian troops withdraw from Ukraine. Not sooner, not later. I mean, this is, pre this is pretty straightforward. So any peace, uh, any proposed peace deal must, must involve that. Uh, and it doesn't sound to me very likely that a peace uh, a solution could have been reached uh, any at any point in the first months of the war, uh, while the Russian army was occupying large chunks of Ukraine, which then the Ukraine, if if Ukrainians were uh, uh, pushed into a, a peace deal, uh, for example, in summer last year, they would have been they they would have had to concede large chunks of their territory, which they later liberated. So it doesn't seem very likely to me that a peace deal could be reached by uh, uh, could be negotiated by some third party um, uh, last year. Uh, and I don't think it's ethical for anyone to claim credit for, for, for the effort. Uh, because, let, well, uh, any uh, peace resolutions that don't involve uh, uh, the Ukrainians, and it's just let's, let's have the Americans and, uh, and, or the British or someone else negotiate a, uh, a peace deal, or it, uh, 
or blame someone else for torpedoing such a peace deal, uh, that would uh, any peace deal of that kind would have, uh, would involve, uh, as, like I said, uh, you, uh, Ukraine uh, conceding parts uh, of its territory Alexei, to the aggressor. we have to break uh, now, Russia. but we're going to bring part two of this conversation uh, is, at democracynow.org. Alexei Kovalev, investigative editor at Medusa. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Shea.